Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 93. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio, we have another guest, Naomi Ali. Hi, Kip. Today, we're going to be talking about two very prominent experiments in social psychology, which took place in the 20th century, the Zimbardo prison experiment, which took place at Stanford, and the Milgram experiment, which took place at Yale. So Stanley Milgram was a social psychologist, and the experiment took place at Yale in July of 1961, three months after the beginning of the trials for the Nazi war criminals, and one in particular named Adolf Eichmann used as his defense the argument that he was simply following orders and that many of the atrocities committed during the Holocaust were the product of social compulsion, for lack of a better phrase. And so in response, Milgram began this experiment and the setup was as follows. There were three members. There was the experimenter and the learner, both of whom were aware of what was going on and of the true nature of the study, which was not about memorizing words, as the volunteers would think, but instead about authority and social, again, compulsion, for lack of a better phrase. The volunteers would come in, and they thought all of the volunteers with them were also true volunteers, when in fact, everything was set out from the beginning to make the actors, the learners in this experiment, and the volunteers into the, quote, teachers. And so I've read conflicting information. Some say that straws were drawn, while others say there were slips which said teacher on them and others said learner, although that was fixed as well because all of them said teacher, so that either way, the true volunteer of the three individuals would always be the teacher. And before the experiment began, the teacher was subject to a test shock or voltage to experience what the learner would later go through because... With the help of the teacher, the learner had to memorize pairs of words before being sent into another room and attached to an electroshock generator. And the teacher, who is again the volunteer, was told by the experimenter that for every incorrect word or incorrect answer that the learner gave, the teacher would have to shock them, starting at 150 volts, I believe, and increasing by 15 volts for every incorrect answer. And so the learner was in another room where the teacher and learner could hear one another, but the learner was invisible to the teacher behind a wall or partition of some form. And so as the experiment began, the learner had attached a tape recorder with pre-recorded responses to the electroshock generator and intentionally gave incorrect answers to trick the teacher, who was told by the experimenter to administer shocks, and did so. All volunteers continued to at least 300 volts of shock, and two-thirds delivered the maximum 450. And as I said before, there were never actual shocks, but subjects grew increasingly uncomfortable, and some laughed nervously or displayed any signs of emotional distress in response to the screaming. And in response to the subject's hesitation, the experimenters said four different prompts and prodded them to continue shocking the learner. The first, please continue. The second, the experiment requires that you continue. The third, it is absolutely essential that you continue. And the fourth, which I read some variations of, was either you have no other choice, you must go on, or you have no other choice, you must continue. And these prods were successful. As I said, two-thirds of the participants delivered the maximum 450 shocks. And some of the participants, in information I read, were told about the learner's supposed heart condition before the experiment began. And there were some instances where 
the learner from behind the partition would scream about their heart condition before these shocks or after some of these larger shocks were administered. And the study has some very dark conclusions about human behavior in relation to authority and more grim requests that we are willing to follow when we feel it is required of us. But we are going to return to that. First, let's hear about the Zimbardo experiment. So the Zimbardo experiment happened in 1971, about 10 years after the Milgram experiment. Zimbardo originally put an ad in the newspaper, in the local newspapers, asking for male volunteers for a social psych study in prison life. Participants were randomly selected either to be guards or prisoners. And before they were selected to be guards or prisoners, they went through several tests, mental health history, to determine that they were applicable for the study, that they didn't have previous mental health illnesses that might affect their behavior. Between August 14th and August 20th, Real cops actually arrested the selected prisoners. The cops weren't told the purpose of the study to simulate an actual arrest. Guards were present at the prison, which the simulated prison was actually in a Stanford academic building. They had just taken a few classrooms, converted it into cells with bars. They created a solitary confinement room to simulate an actual prison situation. And when the prisoners actually were brought to the prison, they were booked like regular prisoners. They were asked to remove all their clothes. They were asked to put on these caps that kind of simulated having a shaved head. And Zimbardo reasons that these measures were taken to simulate what it means to actually go to prison or to be a soldier in war, where they really try to strip you of your identity and make you almost conform to a certain society and lifestyle that you would have in prison or as a soldier. In real life, I believe that prisoners aren't actually told to wear the same outfits that the prisoners had to wear in the study. The prisoners in the study wore smocks and they didn't have any underwear. It was a slightly different prison life than they would have had in actual prison. But I think the logic, as I said, was Zimbardo was trying to simulate feeling that your identity was stripped away from you. The experiment was proposed to be a 14-day experiment, but it actually ended after six days because of the emotional and psychological effects that they witnessed in the prisoners. What's interesting about the study, actually, is that the way it was set up, there are always three prisoners in the cells because they couldn't fit more people in the cells. And there was always the same number of guards on shifts, and there were three shifts. What made the study biased, perhaps, was the fact that Zimbardo was also a part of the study. He was the prison superintendent, and he had a graduate student at Stanford be the prison warden, so they were also involved in the layout of the study. The study, as I said, went on for six days and had to stop before the 14-day mark because one of several people that Zimbardo had invited to look at the study, a graduate student at Stanford, Christina Maslach, objected on moral grounds because she saw the psychological trauma that the prisoners had undergone. As we move further in the discussion of the Zimbardo experiment, I think relevant details will come up exactly of the experimental design, how the guards actually treated the prisoners, what those implications mean. During the prisoners' time in those six days, a lot of the emotional and psychological trauma came from how they were treated by the guards, who were only told to not use physical means against the prisoners, but Zimbardo let them decide how they wanted to punish unruly prisoners. In the first few days, I think maybe even only in the first 24 hours, the guards tried to use more physical means to subdue the prisoners. They would make them do push-ups. They would restrict them from eating, but the prisoners retaliated because they felt this social identity with each other. They felt that they were all in the similar struggle, and they felt like they could rebel against the guards. And the guards realized that they had to use more psychological tactics in order to subdue the prisoners, and that psychological tactics were more effective. 
So they would put people in isolation, the solitary confinement room. They would break up prisoners. They created a nice cell, the privileged cell, and everyone else would stay in their regular cells. And the person in the privileged cell would get more food. He would eat in front of the other prisoners. And they used these tactics to break down the social identity that the prisoners had made with each other. Eventually, the psychological trauma of their situation affected the prisoners so thoroughly that some prisoners had to leave early because they had an emotional breakdown. Three people had to leave the study because of the emotional trauma they experienced. Another interesting part of the study is, as I mentioned, Zimbardo was a part of the study as the prison superintendent. And although he was the researcher, he mentions that he became so involved in the process of the study that he was unable to see it as simply a study. Instead, he became the prison superintendent. There was apparently a plot for the prisoners to escape, and he reacted to it as if he was a prison superintendent, as if he had to figure out when they were going to come, where to move the prisoners, instead of, as he said, being an experimenter and seeing what the social impacts and the psychological impacts would have been of a prison outbreak. He became instead his role. And that lends to the implications of the study of what happens when you're put in a certain circumstance. Can normal people become authoritarian and become cruel because they're given power? What power? does to people. And Zimbardo concluded that even the ordinary human, the random human taken off the street, if he's given a position of power, he too can become cruel. And that humans have this base quality of cruelty regardless of who they are. The information I researched also indicated that all prisoners and guards returned to normal psychological states after the experiment, which further lends to the idea that we become conditioned by our circumstances and environments and we are very willing as people to adopt practices, behaviors, and beliefs based upon the people that surround us and the situations in which we are placed, which I find very interesting. I'd first like to ask you what connections you see between these two experiments. Because of the time, I think in research terms, they were relatively close to each other, only 10 years. I think they both show what happens when you are in a situation and you have these expectations put on you. So these guards in the Zimbardo study, they had this expectation that they were supposed to be a certain type of guard. Zimbardo, I think, told them what you imagine to be a tough guard. That's what you should be. And so they have these expectations. What is a tough guard? So they think about, okay, what have I seen in TV, in the media? And you feel that you have to live up to these expectations because someone has told you that you should be this way. And then you become that person slowly because otherwise, if you're not that person, then you didn't live up to the expectation. Similarly, I think in the Milgram experiment, you have someone standing over you, encouraging you, telling you, you have to do it. You have to shock the learner. And if you have someone pressuring you, someone that you believe is intelligent, someone from a good university telling you that you have to do something, then you're going to do it because that's expected of you. You feel that you have to do it. Otherwise, there's something wrong with you. And I think it's important to examine the perceptions of the individual in thinking something's wrong with me or I'm not behaving correctly which gets at the idea of cognitive dissonance and the belief that when we act a certain way, which is not congruent with our previous beliefs, we will alter those beliefs to match up with our behaviors because, as I would also contend, the brain loves continuity and hates anything that feels broken up or fragmented. And so when we are told we're prison guards, we will make up what we think are valid reasons for these prisoners imprisonment and valid reasons for our power. We will 
try to justify everything. Justification is a huge skill that the brain employs constantly. We try to find reasons for things and explain why bad things happen to bad people, but good things happen to good people. And I would challenge people listening as well as I would challenge you and challenge myself to resist that urge to simplify things and to explain things away because that's the way the world works. As both experiments show, we have a lot of control over how our world works. And by control, I'm looking specifically at the experimenters, but the subjects in these experiments also had a choice to a degree. And I think those choices are harder and harder to make as social pressure increases or as social obligation or compulsion or whatever phrase you would like to use. But I think both experiments show that people are very malleable in their opinions and behaviors. And I think people can look at these experiments and say that people are inclined towards evil actions or cruel behavior. But I would contend that people are made of tremendous potential and as much ability as we possess to be evil, I believe we have the equal and opposite ability to be moral and kind. But I'd be curious to hear what you think about the conclusions of these studies and if they reveal darker truths about underlying humanity or human instinct as it relates to psychology. I think the question you're asking is very much a tie between psychology and philosophy, which makes sense because philosophy was the first study of humanity and then psychology came from philosophy. I actually was reminded about the philosopher Rousseau. Someone once told me that I'm very much like Rousseau and I, I've never read Rousseau, so the, I'm only taking this from this one conversation that I've ever had. But they said that Rousseau believes that we're all a blank slate. As humans, we are a blank slate and we don't have an inclination to be evil. It's the social forces around us that turn us into these people that can become manipulative and jealous and evil. So naturally, we're not born with something that would make us evil. And I think I believe that to a certain degree, I think we're put in certain social situations and we react to them accordingly because if we're shaped to believe that we need to work hard to get something, then we're going to work hard no matter what to get something. If we're shaped to believe that you can't trust people, then we're not going to trust people. It really comes down to social conditioning to a certain degree. I also was interested to research what more current psychologists thought about the findings of the Zimbardo and Milgram experiments, because these experiments happened in the 60s and 70s, and at current times, that's 40, 50 years ago. So things have changed, perhaps, in research and psychology, and certain psychologists I know have almost devalued the assumptions and the generalizations that Zimbardo and Milgram made. In articles I read about both of them, a lot of psychologists have said that both Zimbardo and Milgram were very good at the dramatics, at profiting from their studies and making their studies into pop culture, making huge generalizations from their studies about how people could, anyone could be evil, anyone can be made to do whatever they want to do. And that's almost a fear tactic. I think that makes people scared. And certain psychologists have found that there were a lot of flaws in the way that they perform the studies, the people that they selected for the studies, especially in terms of Zimbardo's study. He asked for men who were interested in a psych study for prison life. I mean, not everyone would necessarily want to do a psych study. I know I wouldn't want to do a psych study for prison life. And so you're already getting perhaps a certain population of people who are maybe more aggressive, who deal with authority in a certain way. And so how realistic is that to the everyday person? And I think in general, that relates to my understanding of psychology and any type of research. Just because you show one thing in one type of study doesn't mean it applies to every context, to every person, to every culture. And 
coming from a science background and having studied biology, we're always told in research that you can never prove something. And I think that relates to psychology as well. You can never really prove one thing about humanity. I think humanity is very complex and there are many different aspects of our psyche. I similarly want to know what you think about what I just said, whether you agree with me what I just said, and also your thoughts on humanity and whether we have this innate ability to be evil or we're socially conditioned. I do agree with a lot of what you said, especially that you can't ever really prove something. You can have all of the evidence possible to highly suggest something and believe that it is the most logical conclusion. But ultimately, I feel that it's dangerous to ever say that you know something fully or that you completely understand. Because at that point, on a philosophical level, I feel that you close yourself off to other possibilities and to asking further questions, which I find important in terms of learning and growing as a person. So I do think it's dangerous to look at conclusions or evidence as ultimate proof, especially when it relates to humanity and concluding what makes us one way or another. I feel as though both studies indicate our susceptibility to suggestion and the power of the ideas of others. But I also think as an individualist that we have the ability to resist culture and to resist authority figures or at least question our own actions. And I recognize that in the heat of the moment, it's very difficult to do so. But I think it's important to reflect on the capability that we all have, because otherwise you will succumb to the idea that you are one way or another. And I think that leads us to paint in broad strokes. And so I don't feel that people are innately one way or another. I think our actions and our cultures and our backgrounds influence us heavily. But I also think through self-reflection and genuine introspection and contemplation of these factors, we are able to circumvent or overcome certain negative factors or potentially positive factors that we disagree with on a fundamental level for some reason. I think it's all about being a thinking and feeling individual. And I know that that's very hard, if not impossible, in a society or a globe where we live communally. But with the Milgram experiment, I'd like to examine the wording of those prompts because in each of the four, which I'll reiterate, please continue, the experiment requires that you continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue and you have no other choice. You must go on. The victim, the learner, is never mentioned. These prompts always refer to the experiment, which I find very interesting because I think both experiments rely heavily on dehumanization and we can find that appalling on the outside, but we tend to dehumanize people all the time. We think of our pop stars and our politicians as simply voiced opinions or as bodies or singular talents, and we forget that everyone is complex, everyone has a background and various factors influencing them, various wants and various fears and desires. And when we examine events like the Holocaust or other atrocities like slavery and various issues that are still going on, I think we need to remember that it's so easy to dehumanize, even in a positive way, and that we should all recognize the constant complexity within people. I think the conclusions of the studies themselves dehumanize people and simplify them as simply moral beings when there are other forces and influences beyond morality. But within the studies, the experiment took precedence over the people within the experiment. And I think that's why you see cruelty and suffering, although in Milgram's case, it was fake. But emphasis on the human, I think, is important in preventing dehumanization. And I'd like to hear if you have any thoughts about all of that. That's interesting because 
One of the psychologists that I was reading about who reacted to the Milgram study said that the people who were able to stop the study earlier and not give dangerous high-level shocks, they were the people who felt that they knew how to stop the experiment and that perhaps the people who weren't able to stop the experiment, even though they were making complaints and asking if they had to, the psychologist suggests maybe they didn't know how to resist authority, how to assert themselves in a situation where they felt they didn't have very much power. And I think that very much relates to what you were saying about how we need to reflect as people how we can better cope with situations that we feel social pressure. And I'm glad you bring up power because I think the words used in those four prompts that I keep returning to have a lot of power. Words like the experiment requires that you continue or you have no other choice, you must go on. Words are very powerful and essential to our understanding of our world and also other people. And when you are told you have no other choice, if you believe the authority figure, you come to genuinely embrace the idea that you don't have any other choice. And so I think that's important, too, that rhetoric, especially that used in propaganda, again, looking at the Nazi regime, I'm not excusing any of these actions, but we have to acknowledge that words have tremendous power over people. And we do have a lot of choice, not only in our actions, but in the words we use to describe our feelings and thoughts. But to return to the Zimbardo experiment, are there any concluding thoughts or ideas you would like to discuss there? One thing I do find interesting about the aftermath of the Zimbardo experiment is that he found or he concluded that prison life was very detrimental to prisoners, that prisoners developed a lot of psychological distress and trauma from how guards treated them, and that perhaps our own prison systems need to be modified to develop an environment that's more conducive to progress for these prisoners. Because essentially, at least my belief in the prison system is that we imprison people, yes, because they've committed a crime. Depending on the crime, they're dangerous to society. But it should also be about rehabilitation, that some of these prisoners eventually will return back to society and should have grown as humans. I mean, that's the hope, I think, of prisons. However, prisons have become instead very cruel and brutal. And guards in real prisons feel that they have to live up to some sort of norm and standard that they've perceived through either their bosses, their superiors, and the media to treat prisoners horribly. And although Zimbardo showed that in his experiment, nothing has really changed in our own society, which I think is really interesting that there's all this pop culture and awe of Zimbardo's experiment and how it was morally, it wasn't ethical for him to conduct this experiment. However, as a society, we still haven't really taken Zimbardo's results and utilized them in a way to better our own society. I agree. And unless I'm mistaken, the experiment was found ethical at the time and then the codes of ethics were changed so that the experiment could not be repeated, which I find very telling and worthy of further investigation. I also find it sad that we don't apply what we've learned from this study or what we could learn from the study, as you say, in our prison systems. But I would add that there are lessons to be learned and applied to everyday society. I think the prisoners were made to feel less than human through repeated small actions, wearing bags over their heads and urinating in buckets, being stripped down and dressed in smocks with no underwear. I think all of these things gradually make you feel powerless. But on the flip side, there are plenty of small actions in everyday life, potentially in prisons, that could be taken to gradually empower someone. You can remind them that they have a lot of capability. You could encourage them and compliment them and remind them of their successes and their abilities. But I think people are 
more prone to negative thinking and pessimistic attitudes. And so I think the Zimbardo experiment reminds us that over time, those attitudes deeply impact how not only we see our world, but how other people see themselves. And I think that's a lesson worth considering, and at least an idea worth pondering further. And as we close the episode, what would you like the audience to think about? In general, the topic of social psychology makes me want myself and other people to view certain things that they see that they don't like other people doing, not as attributed to their personality as much perhaps, but maybe to the context that they were put in, the situation that they find themselves in. I think often we believe that if someone does something, they're a bad person. We label them immediately without thinking perhaps, why did they act like that in that situation? Were they put under certain pressures? Were they just having a bad day? Were there other things in their life that are impacting them at the moment and they're not acting in a way that they usually do? And I think we, as people, I hope, will try to be more compassionate towards others. I agree. I think it's essential to consider the role that context and situations play in our thinking and our behavior and actions because they are powerful forces and we have the ability to shape them, but they also have the ability to shape us. And I don't think people from the outside are as sympathetic to that fact of life and should be more so. We would also encourage anyone who is interested in these experiments to research them further. We will include links with this episode and also give the disclaimer that if we were wrong about any of this information, we did research, but we are only human. And if you can correct us or give us further info that we didn't think to include, please do so. And Naomi, thank you very much for coming on. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. Of course. But we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So as I said, if you have thoughts or opinions or really anything you would like to share with us, please feel free to do so. You can contact us on Twitter or on Facebook, where if you like our page, you will receive weekly updates when we post new episodes and other links. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider reviewing it and subscribing and perhaps sharing it with a friend you think might find this conversation valuable. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.